Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Allie and Chad and the music team for leading us in musical worship. Uh, Such a great time together thus far at the Christian Ministry Seminars. Just so grateful again for the opportunity to be here and to meet all of you and uh, just to spend time worshiping the Lord alongside of you. He is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. Just a uh, brief recap of our time yesterday. You'll remember we looked at a number of key aspects of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We saw Paul's exhortation to the saints at Ephesus, and indeed all saints since then, every man, woman, and child who is a believer in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, every man, woman, and child who has been purchased, redeemed, reconciled to their creator by the precious blood of Christ, every man, woman, and child who has been called of God, to a great salvation from God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We saw Paul's exhortation for them and us to then walk in a manner worthy of that calling. For the chosen men and women of God to walk in a manner which is similar to that of Christ, to walk in a manner that will bring Glory and honor and majesty to the one who, by his grace alone, chose to deliver us from the pit. And because of this, because he had to choose us, because he had to call us out of our darkness, we have no reason to be boastful or prideful or haughty or rude or jealous or bitter or contentious, but rather we should be humble. We should be gentle gentle in in dealing with one another. We should be patient. We should be bearing with one another in love, just like our Creator. We should be eager uh, not to create, but to maintain the unity, the spirit of the bond of peace. Paul spoke a lot about unity in the first 10 verses. He laid the foundation of our unity. We are all united together as one body. We're joined together by who? That rope, the Holy Spirit, right? We have the the rope, the invisible rope of the Holy Spirit uh, joining us all together. We have the Holy Spirit who is not only the guarantee of our individual salvation, but also the agent who unites us and enables us to carry out the will of our Father, which is the building up of the church, the body of Christ. We then saw the, the focus shift from the foundations of the united body, the one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father, what we all have in common, uh, to individual gifts given by the Lord to each one of his children. Every member of the body of Christ has been given at least one specific, distinct serving gift, which will be used for edification and the building up of his body. We We do not earn these gifts. We do not choose these gifts. We are graciously given these gifts by our victorious Lord, the victorious Christ. If one person 
fails to utilize the gift that has been given them, it's not only an act of disobedience to their Lord, but it's also detrimental to the rest of the body, right? As we know, in order for the body to function properly, all members have to be working together. Every member has to be working together, just like our human body here. If my entire body is in tip-top shape, yet my kidneys aren't functioning the way that they should, then the rest of my body will suffer. Ultimately, my whole body won't function as it should. If my pinky toe is harmed in some tragic and horrific bouncy castle incident, which we shall not discuss any further, and please don't mention anything to Alex about that toe ring comment last night. I do not wear a toe ring. If that gets back to Littleton, it will not be good. If my pinky toe is harmed in some horrific bouncy castle incident, then what happens to the rest of my body? Well, it has to compensate for the one that was lacking. Therefore, the whole body doesn't operate as, as efficiently and as effectively as it was designed to operate. Likewise, every member of Christ's body is joined together. We're united. But we're all individual. We, we've each been given one gift and commanded to carry out that God-given gift or else the rest of us suffer. The rest of the body suffers. We have to compensate for the one that is lacking. We don't want to be a part of a church uh, who one preacher likened to a football game, 22 men on the field in desperate need of rest and 72,000 people in the stands in desperate need of some exercise. We don't want to be a part of a church like that. We're just a small group of people who are doing all the work. Every member needs to function together. It's not the Lord's will for his church to have a few at the top or a few gifted men and women to do all the ministry. Every member, every spirit-indwelled member has been gifted for the service to the body, resulting in the glorification of the head. So the question is, what about you? What's your gift? Uh, do you know what your gift is? Are you utilizing your God-given grace gift? Or are you standing on the sidelines watching a few folks who are perceived to be more vital to the body carry out their gifts? Ask yourself that. If you're just attending church to be served, as is the case in a good number of professing evangelical churches in this nation, well, then you've missed it. You've missed it. Life in the church is not a spectator sport. The rest of the body needs you to function, needs you to be involved. At the end of our time last night, we were given the reason for this, weren't we? Paul goes from the unity of the body as a whole, the foundation of our, our faith, which unites us, to a distinct individual gifting according to his measure and sovereign will. And then verse 11, he shits shifts back to the body as a whole. As a victorious Lord also gave gifts to his church. To his church. Verses 11 and 12. Again, if there's anything that I want you to take away from our time together today and yesterday, it's these two verses, okay? Not my words, not my illustrations, not my little stories or quotes, uh, but this section of Scripture, okay? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and specifically these two verses. And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers as gifts to his church in order that they, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, would prepare, equip, make ready the members of the church, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is a monumentally significant text to each one of us here, an extremely important biblical teaching. And this doctrine of every member ministry revolves around the equipping of the saints. And, and we'll see why this morning. I broke the remainder of this text, verses 11 through 16, down into three points. Uh, first, the process of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, how he does it, the purpose of equipping the saints for the ministry, why he does it, and finally, the product, the product of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. What is the result? First, let's look at the process, okay? How he has chosen to equip his saints to be ministers. Let's examine these gifts given to the church, the united, unified church, these apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. First, the apostles, okay? Capital A, apostles. The, the 12 apostles, only 12, after Matthias replaced Judas, and you can argue whether or not Paul was the 13th. He was an apostle to be sure. Either way, it was clear in the scriptures that these were a chosen group of men who were sent out by Christ to proclaim and perform certain tasks, uh, to lay the foundation for the church, to authoritatively speak on behalf of the Lord himself. Men who were also given the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders which were used to validate the message that they were bringing, that they were proclaiming. Namely, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. These men were given temporary gifts, and they were used in a specific place during a specific time for a specific purpose, and they had no successors. There are no apostles today. There's no need for apostles today, no apostles in this sense. The office of apostle has ceased. Okay, well, and how do we know this? Well, first of all, one of the main qualifications for being an apostle was that you had to seen, have seen the risen Christ. Okay. Second of all, you had to be sent personally by the risen Christ. And there's nobody today who meets these qualifications. Some people think they have been sent by the risen Christ. They think that they've seen the risen Christ, but they're either not all there mentally, or, or more likely they're being influenced by demonic forces. Certainly they're deceived. I'm going to hit this thing, I'm sorry. Certainly they're deceived, Right? Even Martin Luther, one of the uh, most important and influential men in the history of the church, recognized this truth. In fact, he, he once wrote of an experience he had where he had, he had actually seen a supposed vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Martin Luther. Quote, 
On Good Friday last, I being in my chamber in fervent prayer, contemplating with myself how Christ my Savior on the cross suffered and died for our sins, there suddenly appeared on the wall a bright vision of our Savior Christ with the five wounds, steadfastly looking upon me as if it had been Christ himself corporally. At first sight, he says, I thought this to be some sort of a, a celestial revelation, but I reflected it must needs be an illustration, an illusion and juggling of the devil. For Christ appeared to us in his word in a meaner and more humble form. Therefore I spake to the vision thus, avoid the confounded devil. I know no other Christ than he who is crucified and who in his word is pictured and presented unto me. Whereby the image vanished, clearly showing of whom it came. That's Martin Luther who said that. Who, who said that he saw a vision of Christ. Now, we have people today who will flock to see uh, an image of Christ on a piece of toast. Or I saw an article the other day of a, about a lady who said she saw Christ's face on her sock. He then showed up in a three-cheese pizza near Brisbane. Uh, frying pans, ironing boards, Kit Kat bars, even moldy walls. Uh, people will come from all over the world just to get a glimpse of this. And here is Luther, Martin Luther, who saw an actual vision of what appeared to be the risen Christ, wounds it all, and he speaks to it and he says, Be gone, Satan. Scripture is sufficient. This is... This is how Christ reveals himself to us, okay? Not on our tube socks, not through visions or voices, but only through his word. Uh, Jude says in his epistle, I, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to saints. I had to write you. Uh, he's talking about the sufficiency of the text at the completion of the scripture. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is needed, okay? There are none who have seen Christ, and there are none who have been sent personally by Christ. Therefore, there are no apostles today. There are no apostles today. Now, that, now one might argue that there are sent ones after the 13th, and that's certainly true in, after the 13th, and that's true in one sense, but they are not sent by Christ. They're sent by the church. These are... These, quote, small a apostles, they were even in the New Testament. But there is nobody on earth today, nor has there been since the death of the last apostle, who holds the office of apostle. Nobody alive today who fits the title as given here in verse 11. Okay? No more apostles today. Let's move on to the prophets Again, there are no more prophets today. Okay, this was another temporal office, an office for a certain place at a certain time for a certain purpose. Again, we have to remember that the church, as we see in Acts, they didn't have the letter to the Ephesians. They didn't have Romans. They didn't have 1 Corinthians or 1 Peter or James and Titus. They didn't have the New Testament. So the Lord gave them these men and even some women, these prophets, as gifts to the church to speak on his behalf to those who didn't have his written revelation in its entirety. These 
churches were being formed. They needed guidance. Uh, They needed instruction, and so God would allow these men and women to give his revelation and guidance in in the forms of either predictions of things to come, uh, foretelling, or godly analysis of specific situations, forthtelling. And a prophet was one who essentially spoke for God, who unfolded the mind of God. You remember Agabus in Acts chapter 11, he says, and one of them Luke writes, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, he says. He gave new revelation from God, and wouldn't you know it, this revelation came true. Okay, later in chapter 21, and coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Everyone starts to freak out about it, and Paul says, whoa, what are you trying to do to me here? Why are you crying for me? Why are you shedding your tears for me? I'll gladly be bound for the sake of the gospel. I'll die for the sake of the gospel. The Holy Spirit didn't say not to go. He just said I was going to be bound and delivered to the Gentiles, right? I'm okay with that. That's all right with me. That's, that's my target audience. They'd actually be doing me a favor. And that's what happened, right? That's, that's what true prophecy is. It's new revelation and accurate revelation from God. And that's one of the ways we know we don't have prophets today. Uh, The folks who claim to give new revelation from God are quite often wrong, mostly wrong, almost always wrong. And that's how we know they're not from God. They're false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. There are no prophets today, okay? Only false prophets. They abound today, especially in America. It's worth mentioning that we are told of a time when the Lord will one day reinstate this office during the tribulation period, but as of now, the office is non-existent in this world, only on the pages of Scripture. Again, these two offices, two gifts to the church, are at this point no longer actively taking place. There are no new revelations from God. Okay? Paul says to... uh, the churches in Galatia, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one who we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, even if I come back and I tell you something contrary to what I've preached to you, in contradiction to what I'm writing you now, he should be considered anathema, cursed by God in, in the furthest point of all creation from the love of God. So if someone comes to you or you listen to a sermon online or some uh, music leader says, I have a new prophecy from the Lord, you should say, oh, really? I'd like to hear it. And then what's the first thing you do? You take it to the scriptures and see if it matches up with the scriptures. Typically, it, it doesn't these days. Every once in a while, they'll speak in such vague terms that it's like, how do, how do you argue that? But typically... They are wrong. There are no prophets today. There there is no new revelation from God today. However, uh, 
These two offices, apostles and prophets, are directly connected to the next two or three, depending on who you ask, roles which are still in place today. Let's look at how they're connected. Uh, Paul says he gave the evangelists. Okay, these would be men and women who would go from town to town proclaiming the euangelion or the gospel, the good news, the good tidings of Jesus Christ. Think of Philip and others. They would spread the word of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we have evangelists today who still spread the gospel of God and they still take the word of God to the ends of the earth. We may have some evangelists in our midst this morning which is why uh, seminars like this are uh, so important. This is an equipping. Everyone should be ready and willing to share their faith at any moment. Every believer should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within them at any moment. But these, these folks have been given uh, by the victorious Lord as a gift to the church for a specific purpose. And the specific purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry through their proclamation of the word of God. This is a permanent gift. It's a gift that's still being used today. Missionaries, uh, local church evangelists, going out, spreading the word, equipping the body through the proclamation of the gospel and bringing unbelievers, new converts, into the church so that the body uh, can connect with them. They can connect with the saints who then do the ongoing work of ministering to them for the glory of the head. You see how that works? The evangelists bring converts and new believers into the church. The church serves them with their gifts that they've been given by the victorious Lord. And Christ gets all the glory, as it should be. Christ gave evangelists as gifts to his church. Then you have shepherds and teachers. Uh, now, some join these two offices together, and they uh, say that the shepherds hyphen teachers or pastor teachers, as if this was one office. Personally, I can, I can see that. I can see that. I actually held that view at one point, but I would tend to agree with those who take this as, as its plain, literal interpretation, which sees this as two separate roles, okay? Pastors and teachers were given to the church, Daniel Wallace, author of Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, demonstrated that the grammatical structure of the shepherd, shepherds and teachers indicates that all gifted shepherds are teachers, but not all teachers are shepherds. And that makes sense, right? So we see five gifts given to the church as a whole. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Teachers. Uh, Alex, Alex Strauch has said, quote, uh, the purpose for giving the shepherds and teachers is for them to equip or prepare the believers for the work of service in order to build up the body of Christ. We dare not miss the utterly profound significance of this passage of scripture for, up, for the upbuilding of the local church. It's profoundly significant. Okay. Uh, the role of a shepherd is to feed the flock, to care for the flock, to protect the flock. And teachers are also given to instruct the flock. But how? How do both shepherds and teachers equip the saints? What is the process by which these saints are equipped? Through the faithful declaration and exposition of the full counsel of God from the Scriptures. 
okay, as revealed by God through his holy scriptures. You see, what do all these uh, gifts in verse 11 have in common? What ties them all together? They're all utterance gifts, okay? They're speaking gifts. And what's the thread that connects them all? The word of God. Not, not our words, the word of God. The apostles and the prophets, they, they gave the word of God. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the church, the collective people of both Jew and Gentile, uh, these people of God, the body was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They revealed and spoke and recorded the very words of God without error, without variation, all the way to completion. And once that foundation had been laid in the form of the New Testament books, there's no longer a need for this function. That's why it's temporary. And, and the evangelist then proclaimed and still proclaimed that revealed word of God. The shepherds then feed and lead and care for and protect the flock according to that revealed word of God. And the teachers instruct through that revealed word of God. They don't give new revelation. Shepherds and teachers, like evangelists, they don't give new revelation. They just tell the, tell the flock, thus saith the Lord in his written word. And the source of their content is derived from the scriptures alone. That's how the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. That's the process of equipping the saints. So how do we apply this practically? Well, first of all, you're in a great environment to be fed the word of God by gifted teachers. Uh, I know Dr. McLeod, and I've heard others of, of others here at Emmaus who are clearly gifted by God to equip you, the believer, for the work of the ministry. So you should view your classes, these courses that you're in, conferences like this as what they are, as you're being equipped for the ministry, both in the present and in the future. Again, if you're a part of a local body now, start serving in some capacity. Serve in the body, serve the body of Christ, and your gift will be made known, knowing that the sole responsibility of your pastors or your overseers, uh, hopefully plural, is to equip you for the work of ministry. Again, S. Lewis Johnson says, that's their one duty, to equip the saints, that the saints might do the work of ministry, that the body of Christ might be edified. So that the work of ministry, the ministry is not the work of the gifted man. He's simply to equip them from the word of God. He's to teach the scriptures so that they, being built up in the faith, strengthened, given doctrine of biblical knowledge and the application of it, are then able to carry on ministry. Everyone is a minister in the body of Christ, and therefore... Every one of you ought to crave the preached word of God. Long for it like you long for nothing else in this world. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every 
good work. This is how the one who gave you life and sustains your life right now as you're sitting there listening to me. This is how he talks to you. If that's important to you. Maybe it's not important to you for you to hear how your creator is speaking to you and saying, this is what I want you to do. For a lot of people, it's not. And it's mind-blowing to me. It's divinely inspired, which means it's, it's absolutely sufficient. It's perfect. It's inerrant. It's infallible. And to neglect it is, is the height of foolishness, in my opinion. So if you go to a church where some guy gets up there, he reads a verse or two, then he fills the rest of the time with personal stories or opinions or insights, or even worse, if he claims to be getting new revelation from God, you should leave that church. Leave it. And, and find a church where you'll, you'll be fed by the faithful proclamation of the written word of God and in turn be properly equipped for ministry. Otherwise, like I said, it's disobedience. You're disobeying an infinitely holy God. So leave it. It is of utmost importance to every two, true believer, as we've seen, every called chosen, born-again, spirit-indwelled man or woman of God that they should be properly equipped. And Paul, again, elaborates, expands on this vitally important truth when he gives us the purpose for equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We've seen the process. Now we'll see the purpose. What is the purpose of equipping the saints? Why does God equip his saints through first Uh, the apostles and prophets, then the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the work of the ministry. Why? For what purpose? Let's look at the positive aspects of the equipping this morning. Then we'll look at the negative aspects to begin our time together this evening. Look at the last part of verse 12 where it says, for building up the body of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can literally mean... uh, like a physical building or the construction of a building, the process of building a literal structure. It was used in the Old Testament sense uh, to describe the building of the temple, ultimately for the building up of those people. But the best translation of this word might actually be edifying, for the edification of the body, the uplifting of the body, the supporting, the improving the condition of another member of the body. As one commentator said, note that Paul does not say for the increasing of the number of attendees on on any given Sunday. The critical issue in view here is not the quantity of saints, but the quality of saints. Saints equipped for the work of edifying so that they can then be engaged in the edification of other saints. Then he asked, does this describe the philosophy and practice of your local church? It should. Because it's God's pattern for real church growth. This is real church growth. The body is being uh, built up externally through evangelism as more believers are added. But the emphasis in this verse is on its being built up internally. As all believers are nurtured to fruitful service through the word. And he says, uh, Paul says in verse 13, this building up of the body, this edification of the body will continue until when? He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith, that we would attain unity. Now, wait a minute here. 
I thought Paul said in verse 2 that the one body already had perfect unity, which came through one spirit and one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and in all. What's he now talking about unity as something to be attained or achieved or accomplished? Well, remember in verse 2, he's talking about the unity that has already been established through the Holy Spirit. We, are, we should be eager to maintain that unity, to keep that unity. That's the unity that's secure in Christ. That's our foundation. Therefore, we, we should walk accordingly, accordingly. We shouldn't walk in a manner that's in contrary to this ongoing unity. Uh, in verse 13, however, he's talking about some of the distinctives and differences within the body that are still prevalent in our day. Okay, I should say, especially in our day. Okay, now one day we will all attain perfect and complete unity and agreement in the faith, but that will not happen until he gathers his church at the end of the world. Okay, follow me here. Okay, right now, the body of Christ has unity among all true believers, true saints, true set-apart ones are united together by that same invisible rope, the Holy Spirit. But we do not yet have the unity that Paul speaks of in verse 13. How do we know this? Well, because we have Baptists, and we have Presbyterians, and we have Lutherans, and we have Methodists, and we have a whole slew of denominations, and denominations within denominations. We have Calvinists. We have Arminians, and then we have those sweet, sweet, confused souls who are a bit of both. We have this doctrine, we have that doctrine, we have this confession, that confession, this creed, that creed, this church, that church, uh, this group, and that group. Groups within orthodoxy that don't at this time agree on certain non-essential doctrines, but one day will agree. One day will agree. Let me give you an example. Those within orthodoxy all agree that Jesus is God in the flesh. That the world was created by him, through him, and for him. That he was born of a virgin. That he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. That he was delivered up to die. That he was delivered as a perfect sacrifice. Who hung on a Roman cross and shed his blood to appease the righteous wrath of his father. That he was buried in an empty tomb and was raised three days later. Those within orthodoxy all agree that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is currently ruling and reigning on high in the hearts of those who belong to him through the person of the Holy Spirit whom he sent into the world to indwell his body. We all believe that a person is not born again or, or saved from the wrath of God unless he has been regenerated and indwelled by that same Holy Spirit. Therefore, we all agree, we all have unity that there is only one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equal in deity, in power, equal in love and mercy and holiness and knowledge and justice as revealed in his divinely inspired scriptures. We believe that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. We believe that he was buried in accordance with the scriptures. We believe that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And we believe that he is coming back in accordance with the scriptures. We are united in the foundations of these truths. But let me ask you this question. When is Christ coming back? 
when is he coming back? When and how will he gather his church? What will happen directly before and directly after his return? I know what I believe. And I know what I teach. But you may believe something completely different. And you would likely have a very convincing argument for why you believe what you do with some very good scriptural references to back up your viewpoint. But beyond eschatological matters, beyond eschatology, there are tensions within the words, uh, the word which sometimes causes disunity and division within the body because of the emphasis that some choose to place on them. But one day, one day we will attain perfect unity as those tensions are removed when Christ calls us home and the curse is removed. When he raptures us before the seven-year tribulation period and the literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. One day we will all attain perfect unity. That'll be nice, right? Perfect unity. No more division. No more denominations. No more factions. No more infighting. No more conflict. No more dissension. Tension within the body and its members. One day we will enjoy this unity and it will be sweet. It will be truly sweet. But for now, we're still waiting to attain it. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Good. Good. Uh, In our time tonight, Lord willing, in our final session together, we'll continue to look at the purpose for Christ equipping each of his members for the work of the ministry. And we'll also look at the product the product, what all this gifting and equipping and building up of the body then produces. But for now, I'd ask you to join me by closing our time in prayer. And then the music team will come up and lead us in one couple more songs. Lord, we do thank you again for your word, your holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word, uh, which you have given to us as a gift through the Apostles, the foundation of the church, we just revel in your sovereign wisdom and your amazing grace that you've extended to us through the death of your son. It's a joy and a privilege to be one of your children, and we just give you all the praise and all the glory that you deserve, Lord. You and you alone deserve. I pray for anyone here who does not know you, Lord, who... I pray that you would speak to their hearts through your word, that you would convict them through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would regenerate them, that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, allow them to turn from their sin and turn to you because you are worthy of their praise as well as ours. But it's a joy to give it to you today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.